welcome to this episode of Healthcare Unfiltered, a Shadi Nabhan podcast. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. You are listening to Healthcare Unfiltered, my new podcast that I started in October 2020 after a year and a half run of the older podcast, Outspoken Oncology. I appreciate your loyalty. I appreciate you tuning in and spending some time with us today. Well, today is a very, very interesting topic, and I hope that you find interest in it as well. The topic is on real-world evidence, real-world evidence, real-world data. We hear a lot about real-world evidence, and we talk a lot about real-world evidence. There are those of you that believe real-world evidence is a good thing, others that are very skeptical about real-world evidence. Well, I am personally a fan of real-world evidence because many patients are treated in the U.S. outside of clinical trials. And I've heard many criticisms that, well, if you talk about real-world evidence, maybe then uh, there is no such a thing as unreal world, that we all live in a real world. Look, I think when you think about real-world evidence, what we are talking about is that evidence that we generate from patients that are being cared in routine clinical care, which is pretty much about 90% of patients, adult patients with cancer. So I wanted to dedicate a full episode to discuss real-world evidence, real-world data. What, uh, what are the good things about the real-world data and about the evidence that we generate from it? What are the shortcomings? Nothing is perfect. And despite the imperfection of trials, for example, we still have to find ways to care for patients. So I think it's, a, it's fitting to talk about that because... If we ignore the reality that patients are not being treated in randomized clinical trials or in any type of clinical trials, we really will be uh, fooling ourselves. So I've invited Dr. Yusuf Zafar from Duke University to the show to talk about that. Yusuf is just a phenomenal, phenomenal conscientious physician, and um, I'm a big fan, and I believe that if you follow him on Twitter, you will be a big fan as well. If you follow his work, you will be a big fan as well. Yusuf is an associate professor of medicine and an associate professor in the Samford School of Public Health uh, at Duke University. He's also an associate professor in population health sciences. And he is doing really a lot of work right now on real-world evidence, quality metrics, and really how can you apply all of these to improve the way we care for patients. He's actually a clinical associate director at Duke Forgy, director in the Center for Applied Cancer Health Policy as well. So you could really tell from the many titles that Yusuf holds how impactful he is in that particular uh, topic. Uh, so it's really my pleasure and honor to have him as my guest on Healthcare Unfiltered. And before I air the episode that I taped with Yusuf on this topic, I really want to plug the show and ask you to find Healthcare Unfiltered on all podcast outlets that you can find. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
tune in stitcher soundcloud pretty much everywhere and i uh, i hope you have the time to rate the show subscribe to the show and write a brief review and of course recommend um, the show to a colleague or a friend with a specific interest in the topics that uh, we have so with that it is my true honor and pleasure to have dr yusuf zafar from Duke discussing real-world evidence exclusively on healthcare unfiltered. Well, it is really my pleasure and honor to host one of my favorite, favorite researchers and individual. Just um, he knows that. I don't want to keep uh, saying this about him. Then he stops talking to me. Dr. Yusuf Zafar, who is an associate professor of medicine at Duke University and who has done just an unbelievable job in real world evidence, value based care, as well as GI oncology. Uh, I'm going to have him introduce himself in a little bit, but um, I thought it would be a very timely topic to talk about uh, real-world evidence from a regulatory perspective, but more importantly, how does these regulatory aspects of real-world evidence affecting researchers and academicians such as uh, Dr. Zafar in terms of what they do day in and day out and the type of research they do, as well as the impact of that into value-based care as well as healthcare delivery. Yusuf, welcome to the show. I appreciate you taking the time of your busy schedule. And I know that we are taping this during the COVID-19 crisis. So we're going to use that and leverage that to understand uh, real-world evidence as well. But for listeners who don't know you and have not had the pleasure of either following you on social media or meeting you, a little bit about you and what you do day in and day out and your research activity and uh, what you do at Duke as well as uh, how did you end up there? Well, I got to say, uh, Tavi, it is absolutely my pleasure and honor to be on this podcast with you. It, uh, you have done such a tremendous job in developing this podcast and getting some really great people on. So it is really my honor. So thank you so much for having me. Um, so my name is Yusuf Zafar. I am a medical oncologist and associate professor of medicine, uh, public policy and population science at Duke University, Duke Cancer Institute. Um, I am also uh, director of our healthcare innovation at the Duke Cancer Institute, where my role is to introduce value-based care uh, into uh, cancer um, at Duke. I have uh, been at Duke for 15 years now, uh, as, of, as of this year. So it's been a long time, and it's been a really great place uh, for me to be. Uh, they've been really supportive of the work that I've been interested in. I've had some really great colleagues there as well. And clinically, you do only GI oncology or you do something else? That's right. I'm a GI oncologist. I treat primarily patients with colorectal cancer and patients with pancreatic cancer. So, Yusuf, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, two things that you do a lot, real-world evidence and value-based care, because I'm intrigued in your role at Duke in healthcare innovation and how you introduce value-based care. Because, I mean, value is in the eyes of the beholder, right? I mean, how do, we, how do me and you agree on what's valuable? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it can be very subjective, but let's break it down to the um, textbook definition, right? And the equation is value is um, quality over cost, right? How much do you get um, for, a, for a given dollar? And so, you know, that's an oversimplification to an extent. And I think what you're getting at is really important, right? Because in my mind, value shifts based on uh, who's looking at it. 
right? It's like this many faceted uh, object that looks differently based on your perspective. So a patient's definition of value might be very different than an oncologist or even a health system's um, or even a broader, uh, a country's definition of value in terms of how healthcare is, is delivered nationwide. And that's, that's a challenge. And I think that's where we've been having a really rough time deciding on what value-based care is in oncology, because I think the first step is to understand that perspective. So because you said that when you say outcomes and cost, outcomes, I mean, outcome, the important outcomes also vary based on the patient, based on the disease, right? There's also no universal definition. What is the proper outcome short of living longer, I guess? I don't know. Absolutely, right? What's, I think one of the um, purest ways to think about value is to say, well, what is most important to the patient, right? Without a doubt, it's living longer. It's living better. But then there are other aspects of value from the patient perspective that if we don't ask them, we don't hear about it. It's something as simple as the time spent away from work, parking. Uh, how much time does my physician sit down and, and talk to me? And do I, do I value the relationship that I have? And is it worth the drive um, to come to X you know, referral cancer center as opposed to going to my community practice? These are trade-offs that patients are facing every day that are not typically considered uh, in the general rubric of value-based care in oncology. When we think about it from what does a payer want? What does a health system want? But what you're referring to that's different than PROs, patient reported outcomes? I am, only because when, when we think about patient reported outcome measures today, uh, the classic measures are oh, how, how is a patient feeling, right? How is a patient's nausea and their pain and their fatigue controlled? Those are incredibly important measures. I'm not certain that those measures capture what patients think about in value. Now, there is a growing set of patient-reported outcome, uh, patient-reported quality measures that are now being developed to actually get a grasp of what patients think about when they think about value. Those include time uh, waiting to be seen by clinicians, so delays in clinic. It includes uh, what the patient uh, values in terms of their, their trust and their communication style with, uh, with their clinician. So these are all new quality measures that we're asking patients to report themselves that are slightly different than patient-reported outcome measures, but really important point. Yeah, makes sense. When we talk about value-based care, and again, I want to go back to the outcomes, we'll talk about cost in a little bit, but from an outcome perspective, a lot of the outcomes, to my knowledge, that we usually look at are outcomes that were studied in a strict, controlled clinical trial setting, where you and I agree that these patients do not always represent the patients that are seen in community practice demographically and also from a comorbidity standpoint, as well as psychosocial support and so forth. How do we take the outcomes that were studied in clinical trials and scale it and say that these are the same outcomes we're looking at outside of clinical trials. Am I making sense in my question? Yeah, absolutely. And you're asking a really important question um, that I'm not sure anybody has um, the best answer to right now, which is one of those reasons we're struggling with this overlapping Venn diagram of real world uh, evidence and value, right? 
So, um, for example, what you're saying in terms of where we are today is um, uh, a new drug is tested in a randomized clinical trial, and you see uh, positive outcomes in that trial. You know, hypothetically, that trial is done in France with uh, some of the healthiest patients there. Um, and then we try to figure out how to apply the results of that trial here in the U.S. to our patients who may be older or maybe African-American, or may have other comorbidities. By the way, the regimen I'm talking about um, is fulfirinox in pancreatic cancer, right? So a regimen that was published in the New England Journal in a study that was done outside of the US in very healthy patients. So how do I understand the value of that regimen and the patients that I'm treating today? And from a payer's perspective, is that a regimen that should be covered? Right? Is that something that a payer would see as a high value intervention when we don't really know um, how well it might work in our patients here? So that's where we may start seeing um, some benefit from real world evidence, right? Where we can understand how to expand the trial evidence that we, or, or the existing evidence that we get from a clinical trial. So let me, let me expand on that a little bit, what I mean. And let me stick with this Fulfirinox example. So let's say, again, we've got this uh, regimen that was tested um, outside of the US in a patient population that's very different from ours. How do we know how to modify this fairly toxic regimen for our patients? So maybe what we do is we look across the country at community practices who are taking Fulfirinox and they're modifying the doses how they see best fit for their patients. We look at that data from all of these practices around the country. We look at the dose modifications, and then we look at patient outcomes. So now what we have is a real world data set um, of how the regimen was modified by real oncologists for real patients in the US, and we see how their patients did. That in my mind is how we can use real world data to help uh, augment what we get from clinical trials, but not necessarily replace. I mean, you know, contrarians and people who oppose any type of use to real-world evidence, and you know I'm not that person because I'm actually, I, I embrace it, but uh, contrarians to real-world evidence would say, okay, I see your point, but there's no uniformity into when you reduce the dose, when you don't reduce the dose. There's no uniformity when practice in North Carolina is checking for progression by CAT scans and practice in Chicago is doing it every six weeks versus every 10 weeks. So how do you really make sense out of this? Because that lack of uniformity makes the interpretation very difficult. Yeah. And, um, you know, those voices are really important because those are, those are the voices that are going to drive quality, uh, drive the quality of real world evidence. So that's a really important problem of this, this non-uniformity of treatment. And in fact, if done right, that's what real world evidence, um, that should be the strength of real world evidence. So if we have a large enough and clean enough data set, we should be able to account for those differences and actually learn from them. So why are differences, why are the regimens being used differently in North Carolina? Is it because of our patient population? Is it because of physician practice? Uh, and if that data set is, is, is clean enough, and, and to be clear, and we can talk about this, uh, I'm not certain that we have that high quality data set right now. 
And so some of those contrarian voices, I think, are, are very appropriately saying, look, based on what we have right now, we can't account for those differences. What I'm talking about is a future state where we've got that big enough data set where we can not just account for those differences, but learn from them. Where do we get that data set? When we talk about real-world data and real-world evidence for listeners, uh, where do we get that uh, data set if you are conducting a study? And then I'm going to segue from that to ask you, are we doing a lot of these studies because the FDA now is embracing real-world evidence and how do we get to the regulatory aspect? But where do we get the data? Where do you get the data? Well, um, so if you don't mind, let me break your question up into two parts. One, where do we get the data now? And two, where should we get the data? I like that. <laughs> so the data today, as you know, uh, comes from claims, administrative claims data. It comes from the electronic health record in certain situations. It doesn't come directly from the patient as much. And this creates a problem. And so what I mean by that is we can pull data from claims databases. If we're really smart, maybe we can link those giant claims databases to ele electronic health records. If we get really, really smart, maybe we can find a way to use natural language processing to pull even more data out of the electronic health records and merge into this, into this um, combined data set that involves decision-making that's done on the fly in notes by physicians, along with billing data um, that we get from claims. There's still a big piece missing there. And that piece is the patient's voice. And why is that important? So let's say, let's stick with the example of fulfurinox and pancreatic cancer, right? You know that pancreatic cancer is a tough disease and fulfurinox is a rough regimen. So let's say a healthy patient uh, comes into your office and your note says, you know, young, healthy, no, comor no comorbidities, recommending hospice. So there seems to be a disconnect there between the data and your action, right? We get that from the EHR. We get that from the, we get the fact that you did not prescribe fulfurinox from the EHR. Maybe we get your hospice order from the claims data, but there's a void here. And the void again is the patient voice. So maybe the patient said, you know what, doc, I am not interested in getting that sick from chemotherapy. I know it's going to provide me months, not years of benefit. And I would rather spend that time off chemotherapy with my family. Now, you made the right decision for the patient. When we look at your data six months down the road, um, we might say, well, in that one interaction, that oncologist didn't follow the recommended guideline. And we actually don't say it this way. We say deviated well, from standard of care. I was trying to be nice to you. Uh, no, no, I'm just saying, but this is how <laughs> you, you see that. I mean, people like, you know, Oh, you know, there's about 20% that deviate from the standard of care. We do it in an accusatory tone. <laughs> yes, absolutely. absolutely. And so that's, that's where the, the hole is today in real-world real evidence is, and I, maybe it's more than just, I don't know, you tell me what you think, but I, maybe it's more than just the patient voice. Maybe it's just that fleeting, you know, spark of decision-making that happens, you know, you go into a patient's room, you remember this, right? Last time you went into a patient's room, you went in with a decision in mind before you went in. The patient said something in the room and in that split second, you changed your mind. Did you capture that? Hands down. 
right? Hands down. This really ha- this gives you the ability to know the patient. But how do we capture that uh, to collect and analyze it? Because you bring up a very good point. How do we solve it, you think? I, I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, we're still in this garbage in, garbage out phase. You know, we made so much advances in EHRs, but um, if you don't enter good data into the EHR, you're not going to get good data out of it. And I don't care how much AI, NLP, whatever acronym you want to use, there's going to be a limit to it if we don't add quality data into, uh, into that database. So I, I don't have a good answer to that. I really don't. I'm sure, I'm sure one of your listeners has that answer right now. And I, I, would, I would urge them to, to speak up because we need that voice. Despite, I mean, with these limitations and the lack of the ability to introduce patients' voice, the FDA, several years ago, they actually went on and they introduced the 21st Century Cures Act and, and all of that. Give our listeners maybe a, what are your thoughts as to how this came about, the 21st Century Cures Act? Like, why did it even enacted, got enacted? And then if we have so many deficiencies in capturing real-world evidence, did the FDA jump on this too soon? Do you think, I mean, what, what, what are your, what's your position on that, being an academician and a researcher who really spends a lot of time in this? So, you know, I'll just give you my perspective, um, and that may not be the right perspective. Uh, and if you ask my wife, who's also an oncologist, she will say it's probably the wrong perspective, but <laughs> she'll say that across the board. Look, I think regulators were hearing more and more very appropriately that our patients did not have access to trials, that our patients did not have access to the best treatment, that we didn't actually know for a given patient what the best treatment was. And so our legislators and regulators um, came together, and this is what this is what we came up with was this sort of um, best attempt at saying this is how this is how we move forward. This is how we take advantage of the technology that we have at hand. So then you fast forward to where we are today, where the FDA is saying, uh, look, we've got real world evidence and we need to move quickly to incorporate this into how drugs get into the hands of our clinicians and and ultimately into our patients. This is where I think caution is warranted. And I, I won't speak for you, but I think based on our discussions and what you've written, I, I think you may, maybe you feel the same way, but tell me if not. And I, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, right? Where I, I do not believe we're at a point where real world evidence can be used to obtain the, obtain the primary indication for a drug to replace a clinical trial. Can it be used to expand um, post-marketing? Can it be used to expand an, an indication? Can it be used um, to look at safety data post-marketing? To look at real the real-world experience of the drug? Yes, but I would caution you know those of us who are saying that uh, we're ready to think about um, you know pragmatic trials that include real-world evidence to to replace the randomized clinical trial. Personally, I don't think we're there yet. What do you think? Yeah, no, I don't think we're there. I don't think we're there. But I also think that we tend to highlight the limitations of real world evidence and oftentimes don't recognize that there are so many limitations to randomized controlled trials. I mean, I, I, I agree with you that the holy grail of knowing whether treatment A is more effective than treatment B is going to always be prospective randomized clinical trial sufficiently powered. 
but I don't think, I don't hear a lot of voices highlighting these limitations. There are some of these randomized control trials are so restrictive that you and I have had patients where you have to enroll and I mean, a GFR of 55 versus GFR of 60 really means nothing in the real world. I mean, you are going to treat that patient in the real world, but you can't put him on that clinical trial. So I see a lot of praise to RCTs, and I'd like to see a little bit more, you know, people vocal about some of these restrictions makes absolute, make absolutely no sense in clinical practice. Yeah, no, that, that, is, that is absolutely true, and, and they are incredibly restrictive. And I would say there's also something, something to be said about the uh, situation where a randomized controlled trial is not even needed, right? So, okay, maybe that doesn't necessarily apply to most of our, our uh, drug development, but let me give you an example from my research, right? Um, um, most of my research has been in you know, reducing the financial burden that cancer patients face. And we developed this app to help patients connect to financial resources. So I was really fortunate the NIH gave us the money to do a randomized control trial for this app. And I had to think, like, was, I did it. I did the 200 patient randomized control trial. But was, that our, was a randomized control trial really necessary in that situation? I mean, did we have to show in a randomized fashion that this tool that links patients to financial assistance actually helps patients feel better and decreases their, their, their distress? I'm not sure that was the best use of resources, says somebody who you know, just spent uh, some of your uh, taxpayer money. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, that's a good point. That's a, and, I, and I don't think... I don't think you can answer every clinical question anyway. I mean, to start with, Absolutely. the randomized control trial. Youssef, what's the recent figures of the number of patients in the U.S. that get treated on clinical trials, whether randomized or not? The last I've seen was about 5% or less. Is that still the case? Uh, best of my knowledge, it's, it's less than 5%. So that means 95% plus patients are being treated outside of clinical trials. Now, is that a failure of our trial system? Is that our over-dependence on randomized clinical trials, or is that something else, right? It's really interesting. We, um, we just published this uh, paper in JCO Clinical Informatics, this relatively new journal, where we looked at the availability of, of clinical trial spots in relation to the incidence of particular cancer diagnoses. And what we saw was that there's actually a heavily weighted distribution of trial spots versus diagnoses. So it's not just the availability of a trial spot in rural areas, but it's what trial slot is available, where uh, I'm sure you wouldn't be surprised to hear um, there's a much higher availability of, say, breast cancer trial spots than there is for pancreatic cancer or esophageal that doesn't reflect the incidence, right? That, that is weighted well beyond the incidence. So uh, I don't think there is one single problem uh, that is causing this, um, you know, less than 5% enrollment in trials. Maybe it's our over-dependence on trials, but I think there's a, lot, there's a lot more that's going into this, unfortunately. But do you think that real-world evidence is reasonable to expand an existing indication or give an additional indication beyond the primary one? Your thoughts on that? Because the FDA allows this, and I think it goes without saying that manufacturers do 
rely heavily on real-world evidence for a variety of reasons for, such as this. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, again, I don't think that there is a, a single, single simple answer because it really depends on the quality of the evidence. Right now, we're having this, uh, not, not you and I, but in general, you know, in, in our oncology um, communities, we're having this debate about whether or not we should use real-world evidence to, let's say, expand indications. I think the more important question is, what is the quality of that evidence? And to be honest, you know, even if you talk to some of the uh, people, some of the organizations that, you know, claim to have the, the largest um, most expansive data sets, they will still say themselves that there are limitations to it. And some of the most important questions we want to answer, like date of death, right, is not available in those data sets. So yes, you know, theoretically, should, should real, could real world evidence be used to expand indications and look at post-marketing? I, I think so. It's the, should, I think we have to be careful in the quality of the data that we're using. But let's, let's say, how about another indication? Let's say you have drug X that was approved for, I don't know, colorectal cancer. And somehow, a lot of physicians, for one, way, for one reason or another, start using it off-label and getting it paid for magically in a non-colorectal cancer, in not even non-GI malignancy. Somehow, somebody had the magical idea they're going to treat this in refractory lymphoma, and they saw a signal, and they saw a response rate. And should the manufacturer apply for a new indication based on this off-label use or should then the FDA mandate, you know what, okay, you see a signal, go do a study in lymphoma. Yeah. So, boy, that's a, that's really tough. Now, let's say that we're seeing, you know, you're seeing this lymphoma signal fairly broadly, right? Maybe you could consider something like um, early access uh, indication that the FDA has right now where they, you might get the indication, but then you have to go back and do the trial later, where that improves access for patients immediately, but the FDA is still requiring a trial from the manufacturer. Now, the challenge with that is some would argue that um, actually the, the FDA is not following up with these companies and, and not enforcing the, the production of trial data afterwards. Yeah, actually, one of the papers I wrote a couple of years ago was looking at the post-marketing uh, follow-up, and, and you're right, about a quarter of follow-up. And uh, and I, I don't think there's actually a lot of enforcement that if your post-marketing study is negative, you don't necessarily, I mean, you could, but it doesn't always happen that you pull the drug off the market. Has it? Has it happened yet? Not to my knowledge. I, maybe there's one. I need to look maybe. this up. I think maybe there's one. I have to look yeah. it up. Yeah. Not off the market completely, just off that indication. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I, I, I don't think it's, it's happened uh, a lot in the U.S. that I can think of. Now, we're both not in the EU, but is the EU also looking at the real-world evidence similar to the way we are looking at it, or not really? I, I, really, I really don't know um, yeah. uh, the extent to which they're looking at it. So how closely, Yusuf, are you following the FDA changes over the, since the enactment of the, the law in 2016 about changing their definitions, changing their data sources, and what they allow, what they don't allow? Uh, like, is this, this like a, 
a, a living document that continues to change into how they do things or what's happening there from a regulatory perspective? So, you know, I can't really speak to the inner workings of the FDA. So I, I don't really have a front seat perspective into what's happening there. What I will say is there are two very clear voices in regards to the changes that are happening at the FDA right now. And they're almost diametrically opposed, which is really interesting to me. Um, one very loud voice is saying, we need more drugs, we need them faster, and we need better access. The other voice is saying, this is happening too fast. And these drugs are getting approved with minimal benefit. And uh, this is actually not helpful to patients and, and potentially harmful. So which one is it, right? <laughs> are, do, we, do we need faster access? Is it not happening enough? Or are we relying on mechanisms like um, uh, real world evidence um, too easily and too quickly? Uh, to the potential harm of our benefits, uh, to our patients, rather. To be honest, I think I fall into the camp um, where I'm concerned. Uh, I'm concerned about the quality of um, the evidence right now that is supporting um, certain FDA approval, not across the board at all. But I can't remember that it was a, just a few weeks ago, a sarcoma drug was approved with a tremendously small benefit. And I can't remember the specifics of it now. I was actually at GI ASCO and I talked about it um, while presenting there and I forget the details now. Um, and, and, and it was startling to me and, and we're starting to see more of this. Um, so I am concerned. What are your thoughts about surrogate endpoints and how surrogate endpoints are being utilized for regulatory approval? Yeah, so um, this is also obviously a really um, controversial area. And you think about um, surrogate endpoints, ultimately I get back to the same question of, is this something that a patient would care about? And does it truly measure something that a patient would care about? And let's talk about the one that has always, I think, drawn the, the most amount of controversy and that's progression-free survival, right? Ultimately, I believe that is still a surrogate endpoint. Do patients care that their cancer is not progressing? Does that really impact their well-being? Uh, does it help them live longer? And I think you know the data is still out there, um, disease by disease, as to whether or not it helps them live longer. I think patients absolutely care, for example, with PFS, that their cancer is not growing. But I, I absolutely know that they would rather, um, they would rather know that it's helping them live longer. So I think when it comes to surrogate endpoints, the true pole star, the true guidance there is: is this something um, that a patient? would truly care about. And as far as I'm concerned, patients truly care about living longer and living better. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and I agree with that wholeheartedly. How do payers, do you think, decide on the utilization of real-world evidence? Because you are in the unique position with this value-based care, and payers do care about the value-based care component. And they obviously also realize that their enrollees that they cover, the lives that they cover, you know, most of them are not in clinical trials. So based on your expertise and your role, put on your payer's hat or tell us how do payers look at the value and real world evidence and the intersection of both. Yeah, this is, this is a really interesting field and I think it is evolving um, quite rapidly. From my perspective, where I think payers will see um, the value in real-world evidence 
including patient reported outcomes in real world evidence, I think, is in measuring quality, in measuring quality of care. So we are in this transition now from fully fee-for-service, meaning the more you do, the more you get paid, into fee-for-value, meaning the better you do, the more you get paid. And potentially, the worse you do, the less you get paid, right? So then the main question there is, well, how do you know what's better and what's worse, right? And, and you know, I used to think that payers had all the data in the world. Uh, <laughs> Me too. I used to think that. Yeah. Turns out, turns out that's not the case. Turns out that's not the case. And you know who has all the data in the world? EMR people. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so um, if we really want to understand how, when physicians are doing better and or not doing better, we're going to have to go beyond claims, right? Is it registries? Um, is it EHRs? Is it PROs? And I think payers are going to start relying heavily on those mechanisms to um, define, to determine whether or not value-based care was delivered. I mean, are you see, but are you seeing payers uh, making decisions about coverage based on real-world evidence data? Um, I know you're obviously, you don't work for a payer, but have you seen that payers rely on real-world data to say, you know what, we understand that this drug did well with a hazard ratio of 0.7, and that's wonderful for you, but based on the real-world evidence data and based on this, we, we really can't cover it. It's going to be tier two or tier three. Yeah. So I can't think of a specific example like that. I feel like when it comes to coverage, payers tend to rely on that sort of interim, that midpoint of guidelines, right, or, or, or pathways. So I think there's, there's two issues, right? There's coverage and then there's reimbursement. I can't think of a specific example where a payer specifically said, look, based on, real world, based on the real world evidence data, we can't, we can't cover this. I think it comes more from either, their, either from guidelines or internal or external pathways. I feel like, at least based on my experience, and I'll tell you this is just sort of my experience in, in North Carolina working with our payers here, is that that reliance on real-world evidence will uh, fit more into the world of reimbursement. I actually wonder whether payers would say that, you know, would use real-world evidence to decide on the rebates with manufacturers because, so manufacturers would say, we need to actually, you know, maybe less rebate from you because our data in the real world is much better and you should really use us more and, like I feel there are some economical th- economics that dictate some of this between payers and manufacturers, and somehow real-world evidence is being incorporated. I can't crack the code yet, but I feel it's there. <laughs> yeah, I know. I feel the same way. Like there's something happening in some dark and smoky room somewhere, right? <laughs> but look, I, I, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I could absolutely see more of this happening, where um, maybe the way to, maybe the answer around decreasing. Um, cracking this drug pricing problem is around value-based contracting, right? And maybe that will rely more on, on, on the real-world evidence where payers start seeing what's actually happening with the drugs and have a little bit more leverage in that value-based contract negotiation. Yeah. I don't know, you know some dark and smoky room somewhere. Yeah, right? but when you're saying like value-based contracting, are you thinking like shared, sa- shared saving contracts between 
that's not what you're talking about. You're talking because I've seen payers and institutions. Let's say I'm a payer. I go to Duke and say, hey, you have a thousand of my patients being treated at Duke. These are my expectations. If you do this, I'll cut you a 30% of my savings at the end of the year. That's not what you're talking about. So I think that is where we're heading towards in terms of value-based reimbursement and sort of dual-sided risk, right? Um, When I'm thinking about value-based contracting is is specifically around drugs. And to be honest, I actually don't know, and I've been trying to figure out how a payer would get involved in this or if a payer would get involved at all. And I think it would only happen if a payer had sort of a very broad base within a state or a region um, where there was sort of a single payer that, that covered multiple health systems. But I think you're right, sure, most, most often that value-based drug contracting may end up happening more at the institutional level than at the payer level. Now, the outcomes-based contracting, which you were alluding to between manufacturers and payers, that would be a payer would say, we'll cover you if the outcomes of our enrollees are X, Y, and Z? Yes. And so, you know, the most well-known example of that, as you know, is uh, Kim Raya. Right. right? Is that still on though? Do they still have that? Uh, I don't. Know. I don't believe that Kim Raya. I don't believe that Kim Raya um, contract with CMS is still in place in the way that it was when it first came out. I think you know. I think actually that's happening more than we realize. But it's happening at the level of you know commercial payers with with large practices. These large practices that actually have the leverage to say, look, you need to figure out if we can get a better better deal on this drug where the, uh, sorry, not the commercial, the, the payer, the, uh, the practice and the manufacturer, sorry, I misspoke, the practice and the manufacturer where large practices have the leverage to say to a manufacturer, um, look, you know, we need, a, we need a better price on this, otherwise we can't use the drug. Um, so I think that's happening more sort of on the quiet, again, in these sort of dark and smoky rooms where at least I'm, I'm not privileged to those rooms. Um, but the most, the most, um, the one that got the most press was Kim Ryan. In you, one of your administrative roles, you mentioned is that uh, you lead the Healthcare Innovation Center. Give us just an idea for the listeners. What is it that you do in there? Like, what is it when you're dedicating a day or two, let's say a week for that, and you go to the office and what do you actually do there? Are you working on um, tech stuff? Are you working on formulas, economics? Who yeah. works there with you? Who helps you? Because you know we're not trained economists, but yeah, so yeah. What, what happens there? Yeah, this is, uh, this is fascinating to me because you know, all of us, I'm a clinical researcher that's all of a sudden seen myself uh, in an administrative role. And so I'm, it's like I'm in residency. I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm in residency again and I'm an intern, you know, trying to figure out what to do with the uh, potassium, uh, potassium of 2.5. So what I do is think about how to redesign cancer care in a way that looks forward to what's coming in terms of value-based care. So ultimately, that means making sure that we're doing right by our patients by reducing cost of care, by increasing the quality of care. Let me give you some concrete examples. Yep. Our patients spend way too much time in the emergency department and in the hospital. When I say our patients, I mean cancer patients across the country. This happens at Duke, but it's happening everywhere. Where, uh, you know, on average, patients are visiting the, the emergency department almost twice a year. And then when they go to the ER, they get admitted almost 60% of the time. That's not the right place for a patient. Right? It's not the right place because 
Uh, it's not the best place for them to get care. And it's not the right place for the patient and the health system because it's expensive, right? So what if we instituted interventions to decrease emergency department visits and decrease uh, hospitalizations? So that's been um, the number one priority of mine since I started in this position uh, just six months ago. So we looked at our peers around the country and realized that everybody else had started building these uh, oncology acute care centers. And this is a place where patients who are receiving treatment can go um, outside of being overbooked to their clinic and outside of going to the emergency department to get care for acute events that happen every day for our patients, right? So problems with pain and nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, dehydration. And so we've built an acute care clinic where our patients can go to um, receive care for these symptoms. And already just in, in two months, we've seen a dramatic uh, decrease in, in these patients who would otherwise go to the emergency department and get admitted. So thinking about acute care clinics, thinking about instituting patient reported outcomes, um, to, again, decrease emergency department visits and improve care for patients. There's a whole set of um, interventions like these that I'm working on, uh, including better care coordination, navigation, implementation of guidelines. It's a long list. <laughs> so, and as I talk about it, I realize how busy I, I, I am. Do you have to get external funding or do you have some internal funding from Duke? Uh, yeah, so this is not a, a research position, right? So I have to lobby our health system, quite frankly, and, and show our health system why uh, investment in these interventions will improve care for our patients and reduce costs. Because look, ultimately, our payers are going to tell us to do that. And, and if we don't respond, then the health system may end up uh, being on the wrong side of that relationship, right? And we know that all of these interventions are better care for our patients. Yeah. So, so that's what I do, right? I'm focusing on how can I redesign care? How can we practice cancer care better and more efficiently? Well, I'm a big fan of what, whatever you're doing. I'm a big fan. Let, listen, we, we're, we're taping this during the coronavirus crisis. COVID. We are, and I hope you noticed, I've tried really hard not to cough. This yes, no, that's good because coughing through the uh, screen on Zoom would not would be very very problematic. But let's face it, this is how what you see with COVID nineteen and the impact on cancer patients and operations, delaying chemotherapy, not delaying chemotherapy, uh, being home, telehealth. I mean, so many things I can think about. Isn't that a fertile ground for real-world evidence research? What do you think? Sir, it, you know, it, it absolutely is in that we have not experienced this before. We absolutely don't, you know, we don't have a way of, or nor should we run, run a trial on some of these questions. Um, so it absolutely is. Um, but again, we have to make sure that we're collecting the data appropriately. Are we testing the right people? Are, how are we documenting those tests? How are we documenting their, their symptoms? And then do we have a way of, months from now, um, collecting, collecting that evidence. And I think you also bring up a, real, a really important point of how is this impacting cancer care today? Now, you and I are both really active on Twitter. I saw this tweet recently suggesting that, you know, maybe we should be cutting back on chemotherapy for cancer patients. 
Um, maybe we should be, you know, if patients are on a certain line of their palliative chemotherapy, maybe we should reconsider whether or not those patients should get treated. And I think this is a really important point for introspection. Um, because when I saw that, I thought, maybe that patient shouldn't be treated in the first place. Maybe that treatment is causing that patient more harm than benefit. And it's, and it's easier for us outside of the specter of COVID to say, well, let's just go ahead. And maybe it shouldn't be um, COVID-19 that is um, forcing us to reconsider how uh, and when uh, we treat our patients. One of the questions that came up on Twitter, actually, and I probably responded exactly that was, uh, question posed by somebody that he is struggling a little bit in making some decisions for patients with metastatic disease when there's minimal benefit. And I'm thinking that struggle should be actually regardless of COVID-19. If there's minimal benefit in an incurable malignancy and probably more toxicity, I don't need a pandemic to decide whether I need to treat or not. But, but you're right. Sometimes we need that disastrous situation to reflect and look back. Yeah. And, and, you know, we're, we're seeing that now in terms of um, like surveillance, right? So what we're starting to do uh, at Duke is week by week, um, we have pushed out patients, uh, appointments for patients who are coming in for surveillance. And what we're realizing is we're probably scanning our patients too much, right? Checking labs on our patients too much. These patients who, who are um, survivors off treatment. And again, this is an opportunity to say, okay, should we recalibrate um, how, we're, how we are exposing patients to these tests and how we're using resources? I'll tell you my biggest fear into what's going on, and maybe by the time this episode airs, we'll, we'll have more data on that, is truthfully the loneliness for older patients, for patients who are older, whether they have cancer or not. I mean, we have made a decision that these are the most vulnerable, that they really should avoid going out of the house, crowded places. And I have elderly parents and and it becomes very difficult because they need that outlet a little bit. And the more they stay home, they get more muscle atrophy. They need to move a little bit. They need to walk. And it's really problematic. Um, and that's really my biggest fear. Social distancing, there's no question is needed. I've embraced it. I think it's the right thing to do. I worry about social loneliness. Yeah, absolutely. And I can see that in our patients who are really torn between wanting to come in, uh, and particularly our older patients who, who really want to come in, but at the same time are really concerned about whether they should and, and figuring out how, how to work that balance. And, and you're right in that after a while, it, it uh, starts impacting how we, how we feel emotionally, how we're connected to others. Some patients, Yusuf, I mean, you know this, some patients really look forward to that follow-up visit. To them, Absolutely. actually the social interaction. To them, it's really getting out of the house, maybe getting a, a snack and then stopping by Dr. Zafar and spending an hour in the clinic and chatting with you. And to them, that's really the highlight they look for in a couple of months to see you. Yeah, it, it really is. And it is sad to see that some of that uh, is decreasing by design for the safety of, of patients. You know, we're starting to institute um, telehealth where, you know, your listeners can't see this, but, you know, you and I are talking to each other over, over Zoom video. We can see each other and, um, you know, we're going to start treating more patients that way. It's still not the same. 
right? No, not, so, nothing, nothing replaces a human-to-human interaction. But I tell you, maybe the, the silver lining is uh, I've always argued we have way too many meetings in oncology and in healthcare. We can definitely realize, you know what? We don't need a meeting every weekend. We don't. We absolutely do not need a meeting every week, except for the one in Hawaii, you know? That, yeah, that yeah. one. Uh, <laughs> or Europe, somewhere. Or, yeah, that's right. So what did we not cover that you think is really critical? I mean, I'm fascinated by what you do on a research ground between real-world evidence, value-based care, the intersection of both, and, and what you're doing. What other things you think are critical, they're important to explain to listeners the advantages of that type of research, disadvantages, but more importantly, what are we looking for in five years from now when me and you are talking again? Yeah. So I... I think it gets back to the patient, right? Um, so a few years ago, my uh, mentor, Amy Abernathy, who's now at the FDA, she gave a TED Talk. And the focus of her uh, TED Talk was around how we're seeing this, this swirl of energy around real-world evidence. But if you look in the, in the center of all of that energy, there's the patient. And this is ultimately the patient's data. I think what we haven't come to terms with yet is how we use our patients' data, sometimes with their permission, sometimes without, but always respecting that this is their data, um, that, that they produced it out of their illness and out of their treatment. Um, I don't think we've done a good job in, in coming to terms with that and addressing that yet. And I think this is a big step for us going forward. And uh, before I let you go, you've been very generous, very generous with your time, Yusuf. Uh, are, are, you in, are you doing a lot of work with ASCO as well, our society on the real-world evidence innovation side, or is most of your work right now institutionally with Duke? How are you engaging, engaged with the society? Um, so I've been most recently uh, engaged with ASCO through the uh, Government Relations Committee and the Value in Cancer Care Task Force. So that work is really interesting because yes, absolutely the the issue of uh, drug approvals in the FDA and real world evidence comes up when we we go to the Hill or when we go to the regulatory agencies and and, uh, talk to uh, the people there. So that's been a really interesting experience for me um, to hear their perspective. Listen, I, uh, I really, I mean, I can't believe it's been almost an hour we're talking. This is like so, so much fun to talk uh, to you. So much fun for me. Learn, uh, and learn about you. Any final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? And uh, any, anything you want to leave them with that we didn't cover? Well, look, I just really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. It's such an honor, like I said, uh, to be a part oh, of the podcast. Oh, you're too kind. You're too kind. And, and, um, and thank you for devoting some time to this topic, which is, evolving, which is so important, and I think will be more and more important in the coming years. All right. Well, listen, uh, stay safe. Uh, Hopefully, this will be behind us uh, very soon. Uh, Social distancing, you know, (laughs) social distancing, Zoom, all of that stuff, you know. (laughs) There's there's world pre-corona and world post-corona. It's crazy. That's right. Our hashtags are evolving as well. Yeah. Okay. Take care, Yusuf, and thank you so much for your time. Thank you.
Okay, everyone, thanks so much for sticking with us and for listening to Healthcare Unfiltered. I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope you enjoyed the discussion on real-world evidence, the implications, the shortcomings, the benefits, all of these things that we talked about. Please do let me know what you think of this show and other shows that you have listened to. You can easily direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan, that's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N. You can send me an email to shadinabhan at outlook.com or visit my website, www.shadinabhan.com, and you can connect with me through that website as well. I really want to incorporate any of your suggestions in the show and uh, feel free to recommend topics, guess whatever that you think might, uh, might be beneficial to you and to other listeners. Um, I promise that uh, I will incorporate any of your suggestions uh, to the extent possible in future shows. We are approaching the end of 2020. It has been a, a rough year and um, uh, stay tuned because I will have a 2020 uh, special uh, at some point. Okay, well, before I let you go, I would like to leave you with a saying from Mark Twain. There are basically two types of people, people who accomplish things and people who claim to have accomplished things. The first group is less crowded. Until next time, take care.